In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... I really want to lose three pounds. Yeah, no, don't put me down for cardio. Diet starts tomorrow. Exercise gives you endorphins. Endorphins make you happy. I want to quit the gym. Happy people just don't shoot their husbands. With hosts Aileen Cooperman... Joey does a shampoo! ...and Sammy Fishbein. Whatever, I'm getting cheese fries. Hello, welcome to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'm Aileen. I'm Sammy. And today we are joined by an incredibly special guest, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford. Guys, ready? MD, MPH, MPA, FAAP, FACP, FAHA, FTOS. Dr. Stanford is an obesity medicine physician, scientist, educator, and policymaker at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. She also lectures at Brown and teaches med students at Harvard. Hello and welcome. Well, thanks for having me. It's an absolute delight to be here today with both of you. I'm. We're just... We're, You're the most accomplished person we've <laughs> ever had on this podcast. Like, I cannot even begin to fathom we're how much on, knowledge you have. Yeah, we're that on is so our, sweet. You guys are the best. I love yeah, it. This is this is what I need to, to fuel me <laughs> through the rest of the day as I conquer um, the world. Right? Yeah, we're yeah. honored that you made have the time, made the time to come talk to us just for a little. So, thank you so so much. Did I get all of that right? You did. I guess, you know, I guess what I can do is explain it to people because people are kind of like, what Please. is all of that? Absolutely. So um, obviously I'm a physician. So the MD is the easiest part, I think, to understand. Um, I completed my master's in public health 19 years ago. So it shows you that I'm older than I appear. Um, and that was in health policy management. My master's in public administration was from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and Government. Um, I'm currently working on my MBA, executive MBA, so that hasn't quite made it to the end of my name, but by May 11th next year, let me tell you guys, we'll have more to talk about. Mm-hmm. Now, the F, the, all the Fs that you see after, not Fatima for Fatima, but it, it is nice that it goes with that. So those are all fellowships. So I'm a fellow of the AAP, which is the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm a fit fellow of the American College of Physicians. American College of Physicians represents all um, physicians for adults, so internal medicine. A fellow of the American Heart Association, so basically, I'm looking at, you know, cardiometabolic health and being a fellow in the American Heart Association, what represents that, and then a fellow in the Obesity Society, which is the FTOS. So, um, you know, these fellowships come, you know, after having accomplished in those different um, areas and domains. So I see children, I see adults, um, I work in this kind of cardiometabolic health space, and obviously, as an obesity medicine physician, I work in that space. And so it really is a culmination of kind of who I am and just looking at, I guess, the letters that, you know, come after my name really talks to the work that I really care about and working with my patients and patients across the world. That's amazing. Wow. Congratulations. Thank on you. I appreciate it. <laughs> what um, inspired you to study obesity or practice? So, you know, one of the things that I was always very concerned about as a black woman, as a black woman who was born and raised in Atlanta, I do live obviously in Boston because you know, that's where Master Mill and Harvard are. Um, I was really com- um, I perplexed, I think is the word I want to use, about the disproportionate impact of obesity on communities of color, particularly um, the black community. Um, that was what really brought me to this work. So if you go back to 20 years ago, um, I think you guys are in your 20s, but 20 years ago when I was doing nope. my MPH, um, you're not. Oh, okay. <laughs> this makes me we just not the, crossed the just 30. Just crossed. Oh, I love We're it, 31. guys. Oh, that's cute. I love it. Still have you guys by a little <laughs> a different decade that I'm in. Um, but one of the things I was really interested in seeing was like, you know, I felt like there was a lot that we weren't doing to understand why obesity, obesity disproportionately impacted certain groups. And the groups that are more likely to kind of tackle these issues are the people that are representatives of those groups. So as a black woman and the group that is most disproportionately impacted by obesity, I felt it compelled to really approach and tackle this head on. So the projects that I was doing back at Emory School of Public Health back in 99, 2000, et cetera, um, were looking at specifically obesity within the black community. Um, One um, project I was doing was looking at um, obesity within the black church community. 
one was looking at obesity amongst African-American adolescent girls, and one was looking at um, obesity within those that are of lower resources within the WIC program, so the Women's, Infants, and Children's program, and how could we fix their, um, their plight in terms of recognizing that we, we can, um, in some ways, work with the limited resources that, that they may have available to enhance their overall health. So this was something that was kind of lingering. Um, I didn't anticipate that I would choose obesity medicine because that was not a field when I was um, 20 years ago, it really was not a field. There was no board certification in obesity medicine. Um, the first board certifications directly in obesity medicine didn't start until 2012, which was well after I finished medical school. But um, I can tell you, I was on um, call in the pediatric ICU when I was in residency and I, I did residencies in internal medicine and pediatrics. And I literally just Googled obesity and medicine at about 2.30 in the morning after I just intubated three kids in the ICU and I knew I wasn't going to sleep that night, so I figured I just needed to keep myself busy. Um, and then the fellowship here at Mass General and at Harvard popped up and I was like, what is this? You know, I, I really was interested in obesity. I had no idea that there was a fellowship. This was indeed the first fellowship. Um, and so I came and I spent three years, you know, doing a fellowship dedicated to understanding the disease of obesity um, and thinking about treatments, thinking about policies, thinking about kind of a myriad of issues, and then also conducting clinical research um, in this space. So at, at, to date, I've published over 80 peer-reviewed articles in obesity, and also written a few books um, to really kind of capture what we do know about obesity and how we can take hold of this issue, which affects not only those of color. I, I do want to state that 42.4% of U.S. adults have obesity here in the United States, making it the most prevalent chronic disease here in the U.S. How, how, would you, how do you define obesity? Absolutely. A great yeah, question, Aileen. I love it. So when we look at it, you know, there's, there's some ambivalence with regards to how we like, whether we like the definition, but we use the CDC and the World Health Organization definition of obesity, which is based on BMI. And BMI stands for Body Mass Index. It really looks at your height and weight and then puts you in a classification based upon that. So someone is considered to be of normal weight status if their BMI with height and weight is between 18 and a half and 24.9. Now, when we cross into that overweight category, it's a BMI of 25 to 29.9. And then we cross into obesity, Aileen, when we get to a BMI that's greater than or equal to 30. But it's important for us to note that there are three classifications of obesity. There's mild, moderate and severe. And so mild obesity would be a BMI of 30 to 34.9, moderate a BMI of 35 to 39.9, and then severe a BMI greater than or equal to 40. And the reason why that classification is important is because the treatments differ based upon the severity of the disease. And so when I think about that, when I talk to patients, I, I'm very thoughtful about I'm teaching them about their disease, but never using negative labels. So I don't call my patients obese. I don't use the term morbid obesity um, or a morbidly obese person. These are very highly stigmatizing. It doesn't recognize the fact that it's a disease, but, then it, but instead creates labels that are labels that negatively impact a patient's well-being and their overall interaction with me as their physician. Um, so those are things I'll stop there because I don't want to take, you know, just talk all the time, but I want to, I want to. No, we, we have lots of questions. Don't okay, worry. Okay, no worries. <laughs> So, so my question is, when you, yes. when you say obesity is the disease, what is the condition of the disease outside of just the weight being just Absolutely. someone having that weight? Absolutely. So what, what's important to realize, I think it's a great question, is that the brain. So there's a, there's a black dot in the middle of my head. Can you guys see that? So if you were to drill straight through to the, through the middle of my brain, you would get to this part of the brain called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus actually tells our body not only how much to eat, it tells it how much to store. And it's getting signals from different areas of our bodies to help regulate that. So it's getting signals from our small intestine, our large intestine, our pancreas, our stomach, sending signals back to our brain to tell us what to do. And so this idea that our concept that obesity is about our willpower, what we don't recognize is that what is happening between our brain and all of those organs is really governing much more than we actually know. Um, so that desire or lack thereof to, if you walk past, let's say, a chocolate store. I, I don't like chocolate. I know it, it sounds like I'm not human. I'm not a chocolate enthusiast at all. If you told me <laughs> I couldn't have it again, I'd be okay. Um, I might 
like hurt you if you said maybe like vanilla ice cream. But, <laughs> I do too. Right. See, right. So those are things. So my brain tells me, so there's something that my brain is saying. I'm not like actively making that decision. I'm not saying, Ooh, I really want to not like chocolate. I just, it's something that my brain just does not crave. And even external symbols or, um, or things that might stimulate me don't intrigue me in any way. I can pass by 25 Godiva shops and be like, okay, whatever. Like that means nothing. So a lot of that's, believe it or not, hardwired in our genetics. Because what we know when we look at obesity is that weight is more heritable than height. I'm going to say that again, because that's always a little bit confusing when I say it the first time. Weight is more heritable than height. So that means if you have parents that have obesity, the likelihood that you yourself will have obesity is on the order of 50 to 85% likelihood. So that means you can be doing all the great things here. You can be eating organic foods from Whole Foods let's just say. You could be exercising, getting in an hour to an hour and a half every single day. And if you have that genetic piece of the puzzle, I can't change the vessel, that vessel which signals and tells me how much to store. I can't change that just by making, unfortunately, those lifestyle modifications most often. Not saying that it can never happen. It's just that the likelihood is small. Much like if you have very tall parents, you would be very surprised if someone you know, has a father that's six foot eight and a mother that's six foot two for them to have a four foot 11 child, like that would, I mean, it could happen, but the yeah. likelihood is small. And so when I said weight is more heritable than height, when we think about height, we expect, oh, they're tall parents. Oh, look at how tall their kids are, you know? Oh, but when we see patients that have, or parents that have obesity, we assume, oh, it must be what they're feeding those kids. That's mm -hmm. a judgment. That's a bias. What actually happened is yes, their parents are their parents. So their parents have obesity. Their kid has obesity. Not the apple wasn't falling far from the tree. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, and so it's important for us to recognize that when we look at the signaling in the brain and the gut, that we have medications that target that we have surgeries that target those signals to shift weight set point down to a stable point over time. Does that that's kind of I know it's, it gets even more complicated. I don't want you guys to get too too crazy, but. Yeah. yeah, I have a question just, just to yes. go back about BMI. What are your thoughts on BMI kind of being like a the little too simplified because mm -hmm. there's no yeah. like there, it, there's no account for like muscle mass versus fat? Yeah, I think so. I think BMI is a great population measure, right? So if right. you're looking at millions of people or thousands of people, it does help categorize and kind of give some sense of what's going on within a general population. What I do if I'm working with an individual patient is I go beyond just what the weight says. I measure their waist circumference because where you carry weight is much more important than just having excess weight or what appears to be excess weight. So carrying it centrally, which means in your abdominal region, is really the area you don't want to have it. That's around all of our vital organs, right? Is our heart, our lungs, all the, the liver, right? The liver loves fat. It likes to take in and actually take in fat. That's the idea of fatty liver disease, which you guys may have heard of. So what we, when I do is when I'm doing that waist circumference, we do know what to look at and what to think about. And I measure, I think the easiest way is just at the belly button and around the circumference. And our target for women is a waist circumference that's 35 inches or less and for men, 40 inches or less. Now, let me tell you guys, if you're watching or listening, don't go based upon your pant size because we all know that guys don't wear their pants at the umbilicus, which is where the belly button is, unless we're going back to Steve Urkel days, if you guys <laughs> remember that from Family Matters. And so they'll be like, oh no, my waist is this. But when I actually measure them, their waist is more like a 55, right? So like, oh, I wear 42 pants, but that's because they're wearing it below their natural waist. Where, where, that, where they carry that, and I can tell you, and you can ask any of my patients if you can find them, I always, at every single visit, measure their waist circumference because I care about where that weight is distributed. And so, um, Aileen, I think you brought up a very important point. The BMI doesn't capture that at all, right? It also doesn't distinguish between muscle and fat and water, right? So if someone has a history of heart failure, for example, where they can get water or fluid overloaded, it might make them seem like they're much, much heavier than they are what we do, what's called a diuresing, meaning pulling some of that water off, and they may lose 15 pounds of fluid within a week period. Was their BMI accurate? So you, it doesn't take into account those nuances. So you're right. So you want to couple it with other things. Um, and I think the waist circumference is really the best place to go because that central adiposity, adipose means fat. That fat that's in the central region is the one that we're worried about.
not in so, the hip, buttock, and thigh region, for example. Great for me. Um, so, the, <laughs> so then does so then how do you then classify whether that person has a di- quote unquote disease or not? So, you know, for those people, the only time this really matters are those people that are on the borderline. So let's say someone's between 30 and 31 or, you know, 29 and 30. These are the only people that really you can maybe say, hmm, okay, well, maybe they don't really have obesity according to coupling that with their waist circumference. But very few people are kind of really falling kind of on those borderlines. Most people are falling very discreetly into one of these areas. So, for example, let's say you have a person that has a BMI of 40, right? We talked about that being severe. That's, you know, even if we count for water and all these things, it's not going to bring them 100 pounds down to, you know, more normalized body weight. Um, Does that help, I guess, get you to understand. So I guess it's really when we're looking at those, those borderline cases and then looking at also other disease processes associated with it. So just because a patient has a normal healthy BMI doesn't mean they're really healthy, right? They just happen to be lean. They may just defend a lower set point for weight. And what you find for very, very lean people, often they actually have worse behaviors because they don't have to work at being lean. They may say, oh, I can go eat pizza today and then I can get donuts for dessert and then tomorrow I can get ice cream and then I can get jelly beans and then I can get potato chips because their body defends this lower weight and no one ever looks at them and says, Ooh, they should really watch what they're eating. The person that's judged is the person that may be 300 pounds who's been doing everything right because that's what they've had to do their whole life, but their body is defending this higher set point. And then as soon as they get one chip, everyone's like, Oh my God, look at what they're eating. Right? So it's, it's this bias that we have, these assumptions that we make just based upon external appearance. It feels like cat food has been the same forever. Smelly, boring, made of mystery ingredients. That's why you've got to try Smalls. Smalls cat food is protein-packed recipes made with preservative-free ingredients you'd find in your fridge. And it's delivered right to your door. Make the switch from kibble and give your cat a meal they'll love. We actually sent some to my friend who is fostering kittens and it is the only thing they will eat. It comes in these pate packages and you scoop it and you just feel like you're a chef for your baby kitties and they j'adore it. Your cute kitty is descended from ferocious desert cats who hunted live prey. Even if your cat prefers to nap all day, they still need fresh protein-packed meals for a balanced and healthy diet. Other brands fill their food with mysterious meat byproducts, artificial flavoring, and preservatives with names I don't even want to try to pronounce. After switching it up to Smalls, 90% of cat owners reported overall health improvements. That's major. The team at Smalls is so confident your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free. That means they'll completely refund you if your picky cat won't eat their food. Now is the time to make the switch to Smalls. Head to smalls.com DST and use promo code DST at checkout for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find, but you have to use my code DST for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code DST for 50% off your first order plus free shipping, baby. What are your thoughts on the health at every size movement? Um, do you think that that has like medical validity? So no, um, and I've written about this actually in the Harvard Health blog. Um, um, I think it was last year and I write a lot, so I can't remember who exactly when, when I wrote about it, but let's go within the last year. Um, one of the key things about health at every size is that um, often I feel as though they negate this disease process that is obesity. So there's not an understanding of how the brain is regulating weight and how that actually pretends poor health outcomes. What we've recently seen, Sam, with um, COVID-19 is that obesity uh, uh, like was really kind of the key factor that really conferred worse health outcomes. Um, at first, when the CDC noticed this, because they had not seen this as much in, in Europe um, before you know, got here to us here in the U.S., Um, They were trying to figure out, like, why is it so different? What is different about this disease here? And yes, does, you know, is there a high degree of obesity in in many European countries? Absolutely. Do we supersede most of them? Absolutely. But what they began to notice first, the CDC said, okay, well, severe obesity, right? That BMI of greater than 40 seemed to confer a certain risk. And then they recently, within the last week and a half or so, dropped it to looking at obesity as a whole. Because what we do know about obesity is that having obesity itself 
confers inflammation, okay? So the body releases inflammatory cytokines. You guys don't have to remember these. I'm going to say them, right? So IL-1, IL-6, TNF, alpha, cortisol, et cetera. If you were to measure these in patients that have obesity, even if they feel like they're healthy, often what we'll find is that they're elevated. We'll often find also that their insulin, fasting insulin levels, which is how we control blood sugar, are elevated. We'll find all of these things being um, a major issue, and you can't tell that by just looking at the person. Now, what I can say to you, Sam, is, is to answer your question also, is that, let's, you know, I, I talked about that 300-pound person, for example. When you look at that 300-pound person, let's say they're my patient, you'd be like, okay, are they not healthy? But what you may not recognize is that when they first started working with me, they were 550 pounds. And so when you're comparing them at 550 to their 300, they are significantly healthier, but I'm also measuring what's below the hood, right? So if you know, if you're a guy watching, it's what's, what's, what's actually making that car run, um, not just the external appearance. And I'm not going to judge you negatively about how you look externally, but I do have to recognize that the obesity in and of itself promotes poor outcomes as we're thinking about fighting off even acute issues such as COVID-19. Does that make sense um, in terms of how I kind of think about it with regards to this health at every size, um, recognizing that often that group doesn't recognize the science behind what we're doing. They feel like we over pathologize um, obesity, but there's a reason why I did three years of study. I did three years of study and still didn't learn everything there is to learn because the brain and the weight regulation that happens within an individual body is so complex it is more complex than rocket science because each of us differs. Unless you're an identical twin with someone, the likelihood that you're, there's significant variation in how you regulate weight is large, even within families. And so um, it's important for us to recognize these things and for me to personalize the approach as I you know, go undergo trial and error and working with persons regardless of what their weight status is. Does that help, Sam? Yeah, definitely. So. I mean, it seems that, I mean, even just in the past like 10 minutes, you've sort of like shifted the way I think about obesity because I think that most people really see it as like, a, a, it's something that manifests outwardly and that's sort of like the only reason why it matters um, right. other than not really the only reason why it matters. Like obviously right. there's like an idea that it can lead to like other complications, but right. I think that it's not really widely known or recognized that this is actually like a chemical brain function yeah. that happens when you do reach a certain BMI, even if the whole BMI system is like, you know, has it. Yeah. Has yes, it has its pluses and minuses. Absolutely. So, I think that's huge, huge, huge. Okay. Absolutely. So, I want to add the chance. So what do you think would, so in terms of like the, the disease versus like the appearance mm -hmm, of the person, mm -hmm. um, how do we, I guess, get people to see it for what it really is, that it's not just like a vanity thing? So I think we have to educate, right? I think that we have to start with physicians. Physicians are poorly educated about obesity disease. And if we're poorly educated, we can expect you guys to know what's going on. So I published a study that came out actually in the International Journal of Obesity at the end of 2019. And I looked for the last 15 years, I looked at what our doctors at the medical school level, once they get to residency, what they're, once they get to fellowship, what are they learning about obesity? And the answer is nothing. Um, so if this is the largest disease in the world, not just in the United States, it's important for us to recognize that about 16% of the world's population has obesity also. And we're learning 0% about it. How can you expect your doctor to treat you if they know nothing? If it's not tested on our examinations, it means it's not important, right? We learn about diabetes. We learn about different cancers. We learn about things that are important. But that shift into recognizing that if we treat the obesity, many of the issues that happen, and we know about 100 diseases to be associated with the obesity itself, I can begin to remove medications that patients are being needing for other conditions. I can begin to get rid of their high blood pressure medicines. If they have sleep apnea, you know, 50% of them will get rid of that. I can get rid of their diabetes medicines. I can get rid of their likelihood for, you know, certain high risk for cancers. But we, what we do is this piecemeal approach when we're treating obesity. We never treat, not ever. I mean, obviously I do, but often we don't treat the obesity, we treat everything else around it, right? We treat all of the other different offsprings, the things that are derivatives of the obesity itself. 
And that's problematic. We're missing the root cause, right? Like if you want to go and kill a tree, it's better to go at the root, right? Not to just kind of immediately, oh, let's cut off this branch and let's prune this branch or let's do this. We need to go to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is, is the obesity itself. I treat the obesity and wow, you're like, what? So, some, so I sometimes get to points where I'm trying to bill my patient and all of their issues have resolved, all of the issues that they came in. So then I have to figure out, okay, how am I going to bill them? Thankfully, in the coding system, they have history of obesity as a diagnosis, history of diabetes, history of fatty liver, history of things so that you could say these were once issues. We're treated. We've, they've been treated. Thankfully, they still will pay me so that I get paid for seeing the patient. But my goal is to recognize as a chronic disease. So just because they have come down, I have to continue to treat them to make sure that we, we don't go back. Because the body has this thing called metabolic adaptation. When someone loses weight, and you guys may notice this even as leaner individuals, when you lose weight and you're like, ooh, I feel cute in that dress or whatever it is. And then your body's like, oh, whatever. I'm only staying there for a few days, right? It comes right yeah. back. And you're like, well, that's not fair. Your brain knows where it wants to be. And I think of it as like a gas tank, Sam. So if you have this gas tank, and let's say you have severe obesity, think of it as like a big Humvee, like a big army tank. And your brain is going to do whatever it can to keep that gas tank where it needs to be. Let's say that gas tank is 300 pounds. We're going to be consistent, right? But let's say you're a very, very lean and petite person and you want to gain weight. And then your mature gas tank is the size of a Prius. And you're like, but I want to be a little bit larger than a Prius. I want to maybe be a sedan, like a, a larger sedan. And your brain is like, nope, you're a Prius. And so it's much, it's hard. It's not saying that you can never overcome and gain weight to get to a certain level, but that gas tank is only so small. And so that person is like, well, I just am having a hard time gaining weight. That's a, that's a rare phenomenon. But there are people that you may hear, oh, I'm trying to gain weight and I can't do it. Their, their brain is also saying, nope, this is where you're supposed to be. And so that's the complexity of this, this, this disease process. It's not just about what we want or what we do. It's what the brain decides it wants. And the brain always wins. So then I have a question before I kind of ask, like how, so yes. then how do you treat obesity okay. <laughs> from your perspective? Right. And there, there's so much out there that says that right. like the yo-yo dieting and like, just like society and the stigma, like right. kind of just, it, it's, it's it's a cycle. It, it increases yes. that set point and that metabolic adaptation. You're right. So, so, how, so how do you go about treating it in a, so, in a, yeah, a long term kind of way? Oh, absolutely. So I tell my patients that whatever I do with them is something that I would want them to sustain forever. So I don't put them on diet X, Y, or Z. I won't name any of them so they don't get credit. Like, unless it's something that's healthy that can be sustained forever. Right? So, if you want to do, let's say, I guess I don't have to name one. Let's say you want to do intermittent fasting, which isn't really a diet, but it's a, a timed right way of doing things. And let's say your body responds with weight loss. That means you have to sustain that forever. That means in 2030, 2040, 2050, however long you're still here on this earth, that's what you need to maintain if that works for you. If that feels comfortable for some of my patients, for example, that are doing intermittent fasting, it fits really nicely into their lives. They feel great. They feel energetic. That's great. But most people will jump on the next bandwagon. They'll jump on the keto bandwagon. They'll jump on the paleo bandwagon. They'll jump on these things, lose acutely. And then like you said, Aileen, the brain knows where it wants to be and it fights back to get to where it wants to be, right? Because it's not sustained. So I think about when I'm thinking about like lifestyle modification, I don't ever ask my patients about their calories. I care about the quality of their calories. Study after study show it's not the number that matters, it's the quality of the calories that matters. So I want lean protein, whole grains, fruits, vegetables as the predominant sources. Let me tell you, even with all of the trends that happen over the years, we have never changed that when we look at nutrition. I look at the quality and duration of physical activity. If you're someone that doesn't want to ski, then I'm not going to recommend skiing. I hate skiing. That's not an activity for me. I need the activity. What is your soulmate workout? because that's what you'll sustain, right? And maybe you introduce some new elements, but we need sustainability. Sleep quality and duration is huge for most people. And I do want to optimize, maximize, not just the duration, but the quality of that sleep. And if the quality of that sleep is not great, meaning like they snore, they wake up, they gasp or choke for air, they wake up with a headache, then I need to work on figuring out what's going on there because that can hinder any progress we make with regards to addressing weight and weight status. I think it's important for us to also recognize that medications that we as doctors prescribe can cause a significant amount of weight gain. 
So I give this lovely laundry list. Are you guys ready for this list? I don't think you guys are ready, but this is a list I'm that ready. I go over with every patient, okay? Lithium, Depakote, Tegretol, Celexis, Cymbalta, Fexor, Paxil, Prozac, Ambien, Trazodone, Lunesta, Gabapentin, Glyburide, Lipizycle, Meparite, Long-Term Insulin, Long-Term Prednisone, IVF medications, antihistamines, just to name a few medications that can cause weight gain. So I want to look at the patient's med list and be like, you know what? You're on five different medications that may cause weight, and they have no idea that they were put on a medication that was treating something else, but caused them to gain 25 pounds. And it's only when I bring up the med, they're like, oh my God, that was, I didn't know that that was the medicine that caused this. I couldn't figure out what happened. And it's something that we caused, right? Like it, it was, yeah, we were treating something, but we didn't let the patient know that, you know, I'm putting you on this medicine. This will treat this. There is a likelihood you may gain 80 pounds. I just want to let you know. Um, I've seen it happen but we're not thinking about those things. We're not taught to think in that way. Um, so that's the lifestyle um, part, Aileen. For some patients that lifestyle is maximized and they still struggle, I may need to use medications. Unfortunately, only 2% of the persons that could utilize medications for weight regulation here in the U.S. actually get access. So 2%, that means we have 98% of people that potentially could use medications to help address their chronic weight issues that we just don't use them. And a lot of that's poor education to doctors. So going back, I'm putting the blame on us because that means we're not, we're not treating our patients appropriately. And then for those that have very severe obesity, often the best treatment for both kids and adults is actually metabolic and bariatric surgery, which is actually surgical intervention to change the way the brain and gut communicates. Um, only 1% of patients that meet criteria for bariatric surgery in the U.S. actually get it. So we're underutilizing the therapies that we know that work. This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always find the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And they're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life. So it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now, you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to Newly, that's N U U L Y.com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. I love your holistic approach. And also, it seems that you have, like, I mean, very clearly a vast understanding of like the different right. pieces of the system. Like right. it doesn't really make any sense that we have supposedly the best therapies in the world. If only 1% of the people can access them, like that is just insane. And Absolutely. I'm sure there's also a lot to say about who is a candidate for these things that is actually not getting them versus who is. But mm -hmm. I do just want to speak culturally yes. for one second, because there's okay. so much hung up. There's so many hangups with obesity yes. and weight and is the Prius sedan analogy was like so clear. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like we're all sort of told that we, you know, need to be a Prius when we're actually an SUV. Like, and there's so, <laughs> there's so many people profiting off of us yeah. trying to be the Prius that right. we're not ever going to mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. And, and at the same time, when it comes to, you know, people who, who have obesity, this country is built, there's like a gas station on every corner, literally. Not, and by gas station, I mean like fast food. Like, no, I agree. It's, so you're telling people to not, that they should not be filling up their tanks, yet there is gas everywhere. There is gas everywhere. So I think, I, you know, I love the way you kind of, you know, you, you use my analogies. And I, I try to use these to help people understand kind of how I'm thinking about it. Because these are really complex, complex, you know, things. And if I really get into the science, I mean, I, I'll lose you very, very quickly. But some of these things kind of just help you to understand, right, 
we should not all be striving for one body habitus, right? We are different for a reason. When someone does have severe obesity, yes, I do think we need to treat that. But even for those that have severe obesity, like I've talked about patients of mine that are 550 that come to 300, I may not get them to normal, which is why I never give my patients a target weight. They will tell you, they're like, what am I supposed to be? And I'm like, I won't tell you that. I know you're trying to pressure me into saying that because I don't know what their body is going to get to. I tell them, your body gives me the answers. I can use the treatments that we know that work. They may work differently in you as some, for someone else that may seem to have similar traits as you. I have to learn what your body tells me. So let's try this. Let's see what your, your well, am I going to have this side? I don't know. I can tell you what the likelihood is based upon the whole population, but the most important person in the room right now is not all of those people. It's you. And so we're going to find out what works for you, and we're going to try all of those evidence-based strategies, those ones that I spend my time studying and publishing at two and three in the morning, so you guys get a sense of when I'm going to sleep. Um, the reason why I do that work is because I want to find out what happens in the population, but then hone in and say for whomever, okay, well, this is what we think happened or what we see in this big population, but let's see what happens with you. And if that doesn't work, we course correct. We try another strategy. And if that doesn't work, we try another strategy. And we keep trying until we've exhausted everything that's available if we have those tools within our tool bag to utilize. So what about, like, why can only 1% of people who are candidates for bariatric surgery get it? It's not that they can't. It's just that it's not, they're not being recommended. So often I get consults or like, you know, external consults um, from my institution, you know, where they'll, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, Dr. Stanford, I want to run this patient by you. And within 0.2 seconds, I'm already thinking the patient needs surgery. But I listen to the rest of it or read the rest of it, depending upon how it's getting delivered to me. And somehow that doctor never recommended, or if they did recommend it, what I can tell you, and I've also published on this, is that many of the patients that would benefit most from bariatric surgery don't want it. Um, and the people that think they need bariatric surgery, which is those that have mild obesity, they don't, they don't typically need it. <laughs> they want it like yesterday. So there's this what we call weight discordance. Those people that would need that therapy, they don't want it. The people that don't need it, want it. I want to switch their brains <laughs> so, so that I, I can get the people that need it to, to want it once it is recommended to them. Why so that's that one is? issue. Why do you think that is? I think there's a lot of fear. Um, there, I would say that if I talk to patients and they tell me like, why not? Like, or why they don't want to go that pathway, they will say to me, I'm terrified. Um, they have seen the negative outcomes, whatever they've gotten from the media or those cases, those few rare cases. Cause in terms of like mortality from bariatric surgery, the mortality rate for bariatric surgery in the U.S. is 0.6%, not 1%, 0.6%. That is minuscule. I'm not saying it's zero, right? It's not zero, but 0.6%. But the bad outcomes that some, you know, someone said something about something that something happened, and that's what stands out in their mind. They also, people that may struggle with severe obesity are often their, their, worst, their own worst critics they feel that they deserve to have to struggle in this way because they didn't do something well enough. And what I try to shift their thinking is, is that, no, you didn't have the right therapies. I'm here to help you get the right therapy to treat the severity of this disease. Does that make sense? So I have to frame a lot of what I do, even though I'm not a psychiatrist, is really shifting the way the patient themselves thinks about themselves so that they can begin to access those modalities or therapies that are in my toolbox that are going untouched and unutilized when they actually need it. Right. I, I'm a little bit more um, maybe aggressive is the word I'm going to use with my patients, meaning I will give them a deadline. They'll be like, well, no, I don't want to do this. I want to do this. I was like, hey, listen, we can try your way now. I've already, they've just given me their whole life, the first 60 years of their life of what's happened with their weight. And so I see the patterns, I see the things that have gone wrong, and I think I can immediately kind of grab, okay, this would probably be the best therapy. The patient has to agree with me, right? Because I'm not going to surgery. I'm not the one going on the medications. I'm recommending them. They can say no, which is true, right? Because they're, they're adults. You know, maybe some of my pediatric patients, you know, it's their parents making those decisions with them. But I have to help guide them. And so I give them a deadline. So let's say I'd be like, okay, well, you know, if, if over six months your way, 
which hasn't worked for the last six years, doesn't work, then, then we go with my way. Or, you know, I give them a year. And, and I'm often always concerned about whether they show back up for that year appointment because there's the strong fear of, of going down, either considering medicines or surgery or something like that, if that's, you know, something that I think they should utilize. Um, so why do, the people, why, why do the people with mild obesity want it, do you think? I think that they see their obesity as much more severe than it actually is. It's a lot of how they view themselves. Having that mild obesity, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I need something now to fix this. Right. They don't want to get into that. They Maybe they have family members or friends or whomever. They don't want to get into that category of severe. So how do I stop it? What can I do? The most drastic measure to make sure I don't go that way. Because they're, they're, they're thinking about it. Like they're coming in at that point, right? Those patients that have severe, you know, maybe they had severe as a child. Maybe they developed it over time. But they're, they've, they're kind of used to being in that that set point, that higher set point, and this intervention of changing or shifting their whole being, right? Because with, with a typical bariatric surgery, they can lose, you know, a quarter of their whole body weight. That's, that's drastic. And how do they even see themselves after that? Like, how do they adjust to that mental shift and how they view themselves? Because they view themselves, unfortunately, often in a very negative light. Well, yeah, just... Back, just kind of moving back a little bit to what you said just about like how people view themselves and like wanting somebody wanting to do something drastic. How do you um, see like fat stigma kind of perpetuating obesity? Like at, like for, if you're saying that everybody has a set point, but people are still gradually gaining weight throughout their life, mm-hmm. how does that feed into that? So actually what we do know is that experiencing weight stigma even as a child portends worse weight status even as adults. So there was this large study that happened where they studied teens that, and they studied them for 15 years until they got into like you guys' age, into their early 30s. And they asked them about whether or not they'd ever faced weight stigma or bias, and then they measured different outcomes. The people that experienced the weight stigma and bias typically had higher blood sugars, higher cholesterol, um, higher um, incidence of hypertension, more depression, more likelihood to try to commit suicide, et cetera. So the stigma actually portends poor health outcomes. We actually see it study after study. And that study is one of the better studies because it tracked them for 15 years and saw like once they experienced the stigma, how did that then affect them? So what we have to do as docs or as, as people, just everyone, is we have to make sure that we aren't really culprits in this issue, right? Like we're not supporting this idea that because you look this way, you're a horrible person or you're not valued or you're lesser than. That is indeed incorrect. If they were to do that at me because I'm black, then you can imagine that would be problematic. And I do know that that does indeed happen after you guys just said it. Wow, you have more degrees than anyone I know, right? But the whole thing is, is that (laughs) the whole point, but seriously, I have to, I have to be there to support and I think about this idea of being an ally, right? When I go and give a talk or I'm giving an interview, people see me, they're like, oh, look, she's nice and lean. I am supporting this group that I don't belong to, right? This group that has obesity, that struggles. And when they see, they immediately go to, oh, well, we need to address this issue. Now, let's say I was speaking to a group or crowd and I myself had severe obesity. That message might, might not be as well received. It, you know, my goal is to, to, to be an ally. In, in the many situations, obviously, we've seen racism kind of rise to a level of awareness. I can go and talk about racism that would assume that, okay, she's talking, she's a black woman. But if one of you goes and speaks in the same level of invigoration that I have when I'm talking about patients that have obesity, you can imagine that people might receive that differently. They're like, wait a minute, she looks like me. I need to think a little bit more about this. Does that make sense? So being an ally to a group that you don't belong to can propel that message. And so when I'm working with my patients, I tell them, don't compare yourself to me in terms of my, but my goal is to make you your best you. It's not about me. I'm yes, I'm the, I'm the coach, but you are the star player. And if you don't show up, I can't do anything. How did you kind of develop that technique? Because even though your tech, you know, I mean, I feel like you have a million degrees, but a therapist right. is is really like a huge piece of it. Yeah. Um, like having the kind of like emotional ability to connect with people who, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure there might be some resentment even like looking mm-hmm. as a as 
a patient looking at a smaller body and feeling mm-hmm. like you can't understand, like you're telling yeah. me to do this, but you don't really get it. Right. So how did you sort of develop that? Like aside from the, obviously, you know, everything you learned medically about it. Right. So, I mean, you know, as, a, as someone that's very spiritual, I'm a Christian, and I think, you know, a lot of what we think is doing to others as you would have them doing to you. How would I want to be treated if I were sitting in that seat, if I were struggling in that way? I think every single time that I'm interacting with a patient, how I would want to be treated. Any communication that I'm sending, whether it's a written communication or whatever, what would I want to receive? Because, you know, we're as doctors, we are also patients. And when we don't receive optimal care, which let me tell you happens more often than not, especially as a, as a black person in this country, that makes me feel bad. It, it, may, it may not even be that they aren't technically treating me correctly and aren't using the right, you know, tool, but how I'm being treated reflects how I feel about myself, right? So if I treat you as the valued person that you are, you are not valued any lesser because you weigh X you're still human and you're still important and you still matter. I just need to get you to be the, at the optimal health that we can get you to. And that's not a target number on the scale. I want to get you to the best you. I want my doctors to get me to the best me. And when they don't do that, I feel bad inside. I feel like lesser than, even though I'm not technically. So I think about that. Does that help Sam in terms of kind of, yeah. So yeah. a lot of empathy. Right. Um, and I mean, just something you just touched on is your experience not receiving what, what you know to be proper care. Can right. you talk about some of the health treatment disparities and how it affects the outcomes when it comes to race? And then even like the interaction with obesity, because that obviously has a whole racial component as well. Absolutely. I, I really think this is an important topic. Um, you know, we and we could do the whole episode. I mean, I grew up in the, in Southwest Atlanta, and what I, I do have the reason why I'm bringing that back up again is is because where I grew up, the zip code I grew up in has more black doctors per capita than anywhere else in the entire United States. Which means that growing up, most of my doctors, not most, all of my doctors look like me. Right? They look like me, so I it, I felt as though I was not being treated negatively because of how I look because I look like my doctors. That the way where I grew up in that 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 high per capita rate of physicians doesn't exist here in Boston, um, which means that when I'm accessing care, the likelihood that I will have a physician that looks anything like me or understands me in the way that I feel like I need to be understood is is low. Um, I was inpatient in the hospital here in 2018 as a physician, um, and the treatment that I received inpatient. Um, traumatizes me to this day. Um, Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The level of treatment that I received, I think, was deplorable. Um, I think what that says is that no matter all of those degrees that I accumulated at the time and all the education, I was able to use that to help advocate for myself. But I, I was just wondering, if I didn't have all of the knowledge I have, how would I have been able to navigate the situation? And I, the, the, the answer is I wouldn't have been able to. Um, which I think is also disgusting, right? Because I don't expect everyone to go and spend 30 years of their life doing all of what I've done just to be able to, to be a patient that receives at least barely standard care. Um, so I think that what we do when we're working with patients, whether where we're healthcare providers, physicians, physician extenders, like nurse practitioners, um, PAs, et cetera, nurses, is that we... We treat people how we well, how we feel internally about them, our internal and our external biases, or what we call implicit and explicit biases. We don't think that we have explicit bias towards certain groups, but what we do know is that the two most common forms of bias in the United States today are race bias and weight bias. And so that overlay, like you just talked about, so if we know that about 60% of Black women have obesity, and we know that Black people are also treated a certain way. So if there's a Black person that has obesity, you can imagine what their encounter would be in a healthcare setting because they're seen as lazy. They're seen as deplorable. They're seen all these things. And so they can't even get to the point of getting to a place of health because before you even have gotten to consider like what you need to do to make that person the healthiest self, you've already made all of these judgments that impact the level of care you're able to provide. 
And for many, what they decide is like, okay, I'm just not going to seek care. Because when I go into that setting, I'm not welcome. I'm not treated in the human way that I know that I can be treated. So why seek care? And so then something like COVID happens and they didn't get the chronic care that they need. And then unfortunately they lose their life because they didn't get that chronic care therapy that they needed to prepare them for something acute like what we're experiencing today. Does that, does that kind of give you, it's, it's a lot that we could go, like you said, we could do a whole um, you know, issue or episode on that. But I, I think this kind of captures um, the, the problem with both race bias and weight bias and the, the interplay between the two. I mean, how are people even expected to like perceive the gaps in their own care? It's well, so... they don't often. I mean, I think that there are, there's a certain group that's educated to a certain way, place where they recognize, they immediately recognize that they're receiving lesser care, but most don't recognize it, right? Because they have not, they have, they, have, they don't know what, what's considered good or bad or, or else or otherwise. And so I think that that, that widens the gap. And as, as we think about, like, for example, telemedicine, which is what I do with my patients exclusively right now in this kind of COVID era. What I find is that my patients that are lower socioeconomic status or my older patients, they have a hard time getting onto like a Zoom. And, and they're like, well, I don't know. I don't. I tried to get on. By the time I get them on, their patient appointment's almost over. So the one that needed the most time and attention, I have to, you know, I have seven minutes left in their 30-minute appointment because it took them that long to get onto the technology. So even things that we think are supposedly helping widen disparity. So we have to do better. We, when I'm saying we, healthcare corporations, et cetera, have to do better about thinking about how we are not addressing some of those that are in the most need. So, so when we're looking at, you know, socioeconomic status, right, we're looking at um, access, we're looking at um, resources. And what we do know is that if you have lesser resources, you have lesser access to the things that you need to be your healthiest self, right? We know that I told you guys earlier that the lesser the processed of the foods, the better, right? If your food does not look like where it came from, probably not so great, right? So we, we need to look at the less processed foods, but less processed foods are often much more expensive. It's much cheaper for you to go to that fast food restaurant and get five burgers for $5 as opposed to buying a one bag of salad, that's $5. Or even going to a fast food restaurant and buying a salad. And what you guys know, is if you're buying a salad from a fast food place, $10, $12. Imagine you have a family of five or six to feed. That's exorbitantly priced. Now, there are ways that we can teach you on how to, to shop using, you know, you know, government assistance to, to maximize the quality of what you're getting. But a lot of people don't just have access in their communities to low processed foods. They don't have access to safe spaces with which to conduct physical activity. They have so many stressors that they're interacting with that those stressors lead to inflammation, which leads to retention of fat. It leads to adipose. That fat tissue we talked about being deposited where? In the midsection. Because when we experience stress, traditionally as humans, we that was as part of our um, preparing for famine. Okay. When we experienced stress, the stress was that food was not coming. And so the body did what it needed to do to prepare for the famine. It stored fat in different areas to prepare itself. The stressors we experience today are different. The stressors are, I don't have a job or I lost my job in COVID-19. I don't have um, access to um, food that's, that's healthy. I have food insecurity. I don't have access to healthcare. I don't, these are the stressors that we are affected by. It's not that we don't necessarily just have food. We, we don't have access to the right things. And the brain doesn't interpret that any differently than what it did throughout evolution, where it said, okay, stress, store fat, right? So patients that have lower socioeconomic status have more stressors. Racism, for example, is a stressor. It causes more inflammation. It causes more adipose fat tissue to store. And here we have this vicious cycle. Yeah, I think also one of the most underrated resources when it comes to this conversation is also simply time. Like, right. I, I mean, I've in quarantine, like I've started cooking a lot more and mm -hmm. it has only like, I've only started like really appreciating the amount of time that needs to be devoted to that process. Right. Absolutely. Um, at now. And 
like from planning it, knowing what ingredients you need to get. And then actually like, and you know, we get to the end of every day and I'm like, oh shit, I have to make dinner. (laughs) And like, I don't, you know, I have my, I have a lot of control over my time relative to other people. Right. So if, if for me, it's like a, a stressful challenge, I mean, hardly stressful. It's like literally the first <laughs> yeah, world is a problem. But there is like a consideration in right. in it. And then you're adding that on to like not having a job, all these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe being a single mother. Who knows? Like there's right. also just it it it's so much harder when someone else owns your time Absolutely. than you don't have any control. We appreciate. Yeah, and you no, also and you have no children to be like right n- right now to be cooking for. Imagine having the exact same salary, and then you have three <laughs> more people to have to cook for. You'd have to buy less quality or less expensive ingredients, right? And and then stretch it, right? Stretch, stretch it, it out exactly, absolutely. And that's and what that's happens. Stressful. <laughs> it's stressful. It's very stressful. I mean, these are things that you know that I'm thoughtful about. There are a lot of things that I think that that are now available that help to reduce some of this burden. So for example, services like Misfits um, and Perfect Foods, et cetera, where you you get nine to 11 pounds of organic fruits and vegetables delivered to your door for $26. And that's that's great. But the thing is, is then, okay, so then what do you, how do you, do you know what to do with it? Like you get all these things, you're like, what kind of vegetables? I don't know what this is. Um, and so p- patients get, you know, they're like even more flustered by that because it doesn't seem palatable. They don't know how to, to create these great meals out of all of this fresh content that's palatable. So some of it is just educating that, Hey, you can have these potatoes and you can have this kale and you can have this and Ooh, this is how you make it taste good so that your kids want to eat it. Um, But if kids are not ever learning that they can eat very healthy and it still tastes good, they become 20 year olds or 21 year olds and they're coming to my office and then they want surgery. And I'm like, wait a minute, you eat zero vegetables. That's not where I start. I like to maximize right lifestyle first. I don't want to just, it's not that I don't, I mean, I don't make any money off the surgery. I'm not a surgeon. Yes. I work with the bariatric surgeons. I want you to have surgery if that's what you need, but I want to make sure you're healthy yourself, right? It's not just about you getting to a certain size and being able to wear a bikini on the beach. It's about you being healthy. And whatever I can do, lifestyle being the, the cornerstone, right, the foundation, then I build upon that with medicines or surgery or a combination of things. But I want to get that lifestyle piece as solid as we can make it before we begin to, to escalate therapies. But if you don't have access to those things, it makes it much more complicated. So if there's anything that's... Um you could share just like one note to a listener who's just kind of not sure, like, because mm-hmm. we always, Sammy and I always talk about dieting, not dieting, mm-hmm. like intuitive eating, obesity, like the whole world. What can they take from this conversation? So I would say the kind of the, the, the key thing I want you to get is that if you struggle with your weight, it is not your fault. It is complex. It's multifactorial. We know that genetics, environment, development, behavior all play a role in a person's likelihood of having obesity. There are people like me, obesity medicine doctors that are out there that are ready to help, that are there to support and recognize that. And if you need assistance, I would go to the American Board of Obesity Medicine and make sure that you look for a doctor in your zip code that may be able to assist don't do anything that is not sustainable over the life course. And that's important. Well, thank you. I think that's an amazing message to share with people because often it, 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 the messages from marketing or magazines or whatever it is, there's, we're, there's, we're told that it is our fault. So right. it's great to hear fault. from a doctor. <laughs> not your fault. And it, so then people come to me and the next question, they say, well, what? Well, I did eat that ice cream or I did eat those. Yes, but... Some of that, yes, we can we can fix the behaviors, but you may have been influenced to do that for some reason. Maybe you had stress, like when you have stress, or let's say you went on your menstrual cycle. A lot of people have different cravings surrounding those hormonal changes during their menstrual cycles. And they're like, wait a minute, why why do I want potato chips? This weird, I hate potato chips. And they're like, oh, my cycle is about to start. So you know, there's different influences, and we don't realize how powerful those influences are. We want to have more control. We want to think that we have more control than we actually do. Um, and so it's a way of just knowing that, okay, these things happened. I see it. I need help. And that's okay. That's, that's why we're here. Well, that's great. Thank you so much yeah. <laughs> for sharing. Absolutely. Um, Sammy, do you want to do non-scale wins? Yes. Okay. Um, so 
this basically we just share what's a win or success that we had that has nothing to do with the scale. Okay. (laughs) Um, Sammy, you go. (laughs) Okay. Um, This weekend was, you know, July 4th weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, Avi and I went out to Montauk and I was like, you know, not feeling great about my body at first because, you know, quarantine, not, I just kind of eat whatever I want. Um, And I had gained some weight um, since, you know, April, let's say. And I had over this weekend, like I had sort of like a shift in like how I saw myself. Like at one point I literally said to Avi, I was like, I see why you find me attractive, even though I feel (laughs) fat. Like and I saw it. Like I literally, I saw it. I was like, who cares? Like, it's just like, I can't have my brain power focused on like criticizing myself anymore. I'm just like so done with it. And I feel like I am, I feel like beautiful. You know, you're hot. hot. (laughs) Oh, thank you. You know, I feel like, I feel like you guys are cute. Like, I feel like over it. Like, I feel like I'm never going to be this like thin weight that I Prius. (laughs) Yeah. And just like, I look good not being the Prius. Do you really want to be a Prius anyway? I, I had to interject there. Uh, I don't know. I, I, spent, I really want to be a Prius. <laughs> spent a lot of years. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time trying to be like a pinky finger with. <laughs> Never. I can't get there. That's not what my body is. That's not what my ancestors are like. They're like yeah. Eastern European people who like eat latkes and shit. Like, <laughs> it's not happening. Um, yeah, I What's had your not I had a very similar experience actually. Um, July 4th weekend. First of all, this is the first kind of weekend where I didn't really even think about, oh, I have to be in a bathing suit. Um, mm. I just kind of put on a bathing suit, which was a very like new experience because like last summer I was like, and that's when I was even like, cause I was preparing, preparing for my wedding mm. <laughs> like, as if it was a training. It's like I was preparing for the Olympics. Pre- no, no, I think that people do that. I think <laughs> yeah. that everybody does that. I was more self-conscious then than I feel like I was now. Mm-hmm. And I kind of went into it and I thought I, I came back and I even told my husband, I was like, wow, like I kind of feel great. And I wore a bikini. Not, not, if anything, I gained more weight. And I, I was like, I feel great. Like the amount of, I had so much fun and I didn't think about once. Like I did, but then I was like, oh, shut up. Like go throw a Frisbee. Like stop thinking about that. And the amount of stress I noticed I didn't have was noticeable and yeah. is significant. So I'm going to go, I'm going to keep going this direction. So I'm excited. Um, Dr. Sanford, do you have any non-scale wins? Non-scale wins. You know, I think a non-scale wool is hanging out with you guys. I think having different, no, seriously, having different people hear my message is extremely important. Um, I wish I could clone me and just send me all around to speak all the time. I mean, I speak a lot, but um, I really get a lot of joy about educating, about teaching my students, my residents, my fellows, my junior faculty, my, my success comes with their success. You know, yes, I, I like success myself, but do you know how much joy it brings me to see someone come to that realization that, look, I need help, they get the help, and then recognizing, wow, all I needed was some additional assistance, and look at where I've come, without the focus on what is that per se number. And so, being able to do this work, speak with you guys, and think about that with my patients brings me immense joy. And I, I really believe that this is why I was put here on this earth to do this work. That's amazing. That's so nice. Thank you so much yeah. for yeah. sharing your yeah. work with um, our yeah. audience and us. And yeah. for anybody who wants to read more of your work, um, I know you, you said you published books. So can mm-hmm. you share how? Absolutely. So, um, the, the, have you, so think, believe it or not, I'm the only Fatima Cody Stanford in the world. It's great. It means it's easy to find me. Um, it also means that if you go to Amazon and type me, you find me. So, so a book, I have a book that came out called Facing Overweight and Obesity, a complete guide for children and adults. Um, and it really goes through about 300 pages of kind of these things that we've talked about, but in more detail. Um, it was written here through Mass General. So my two co-authors are both psychiatrists, which as you guys have learned is a big part of kind of how I have to think about the work that I'm doing. Um, I think that that's a really great tool. There are um, a lovely resources that are out there. If you just Google Harvard Fatima, you can reach, find a lot of my videos and things that are, are free, not behind a paywall, where you can just hear me talk about obesity, the disease, and explain what I do with my patients. 
Um, I find these very useful. Um, I think that people find them very useful. That's what, I, they, they, that's what they tell me. Um, and so I would say that's, that's the easiest way. If you want to find me on social media, um, my Twitter handle and um, my Instagram is F Stanford, S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D-M-D. Um, if you're really, you know, really into business, you can find me on LinkedIn and I'm all about LinkedIn too. So I, I try to post across those three platforms, um, you know, on a regular basis, different types of content to, 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 to reflect different, um, groups. Um, and so I think that's how I mean, it's easy to find me. You know, I think it's just, just find me if you need me, if you, if you, if you want to have me speak, let me know, I'll be there. Well, thank you so much, and you. good luck with your MBA. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm I'm on track. I get my things. It tells me you are on track to finish in time. So yes, yeah, so I try <laughs> to make sure that I'm doing my work. It is yes, another degree. I had no idea. I thought it was fourth and final. That was the alliteration I used to use, and now it's, I guess, fifth and final. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so my husband is kind of like, oh god, here she goes again. Um, but you know, for me, it's like I I think that when you look at, you know, kind of all the training that I've done, all the residencies, the fellowships, a lot of it is, is this idea to always be better for the people that I'm serving, right? So if I can continue to improve myself, that makes it better for whomever I'm interacting with. And so that's how I think about it. Please come back and talk yes. about a million things with us. Let's do I it. Like Let's so do many it. Let's other do it. Things to touch on. No, I, yeah. I enjoy talking. I love interviewing, um, you know, most doctors feel a little bit awkward in, in this type of space. This is where I feel comfortable. This is, this is, this feels like home to me. So absolutely. Thank right, you. Well, thank you so much. And we're always with you through thick and thin. <laughs> Diet Starts Tomorrow is hosted by Aileen Cooperman and Sammy Fishbine. Our editor is Sean Kilby. Our podcast producers are Mike Coscarelli, Sean Kilby, and Carly Rice. And artwork is by Brittany Levine. Be sure to follow us at Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram and email your questions and non-scale wins to dst at betches.com. Betches.